Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Merman co-founder Clelia Mountford about the company's particular brand of comedy drama. Kudos Managing Director Martin Haynes on the firm's new BBC drama about the SAS penned by Peaky Blinders scribe Stephen Knight and Salto Content Director Thomas Croissant on the TF1 MC's France Television joint venture streamers programming strategy. Comedian Sharon Horgan and former RDF head of comedy Clelia Mountford set up Merman eight years ago, going on to create hits including Catastrophe, Motherland and This Way Up. The transatlantic outfit has forged relations with the BBC, Channel 4, Hulu, Amazon, HBO, Stars and many more. Mountford spoke to Nico Franks about Merman's particular brand of comedy drama, its partnerships with broadcasters and streamers and the latest season of Sky and ABC series Frayed. Obviously, comedy drama is such a, a rich theme at the moment and seems to be really in demand, both with broadcasters and streamers. How is that reflected in the kind of structure of Merman? So do you have a head of drama and a head of comedy and then they kind of bring ideas together or kind of, yeah, how does that work out? We have a head of drama, that's Faye Dawn, who joined us actually during the pandemic. So we didn't actually physically meet her for a while. And she has her own little team of development. But Sharon and I across everything that we develop. We're a small, we're a very small team still. In terms of the comedy, I suppose that's me really, the head of comedy. And I have a development producer, Charlie Laurie, as well, an in-house producer. But yes, we we talk about everything. I mean, in terms of what we look for for drama, we're never going to do anything really, really bleak. We'll have those because that's not how we look at life. We navigate life's bleakness through humour, I think. And that's all our everyone who works at the moment. That's our perspective. We have to laugh at some point. And you've got to earn that drama and, and also that relief as well from, from life's darkness. So, and, and we want surprising twists and turns. We'll say, is that a Merman show? Because it surprisingly, we seem to have a brand now, but honestly, it was mine and Sharon's taste when we first set up because we wanted to make things that we liked rather than just what will sell or what will be commercial or what an exec wants working for another production company. So I think it's very much our taste. And then in terms of comedy, again, it's what makes us laugh, but it's also what makes us think a little bit more and challenges us. And it's very character driven. We won't necessarily do something that is all about the jokes and anybody could say that joke. And it's, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily come from character because that's probably not our taste. There's room for that, but it's not what we're necessarily good at or, or know about or can do. We love story. We, we love that. And we love putting characters in interesting situations and see how they react to that story. So that quite often drives our development. And also it could be an unusual perspective on perhaps a universal situation like when we made um there she goes it's it's a family comedy but from a very different perspective of a father and and mother with a severely learning disabled child so that was interesting to us we haven't seen that before but people can still relate because it's about siblings it's parenting it's school issues all of that but from a very different viewpoint so that's it's has this story been told before and if so how can we do it differently I think drives our development and how are you seeing that genre evolve it it feels like so you've got a show coming up called Shining Veil which has a lot of horror elements um, as well as comedy. So how is, is that an example of how the kind of comedy drama genre is evolving? Yeah, I mean, that came out of our US development. So it's slightly different. And it started a while ago. With with US, you know, you have loads of other producers and other partners. So it wasn't a solely Merman show, I have to say that. But Sharon co-created that and, and came up with the idea. But yes, it felt because it's her vision as well. That was interesting because there's a reality at the heart of it, of this woman of a certain age, depressed, possibly menopausal, going through a time of her life, losing confidence in her work, in her marriage. Is she seeing ghosts or is it is it hormonal? It's that. I mean, it's it's not quite as basic as that. But and that's been looked at. I mean, years ago, I don't know if you know Charlotte Perkins Gilman, The Yellow Wallpaper, about a woman frustrated in her creative process 
and not quite sure whether she's going mad or seeing things or whether it's hormonal. And that was from 1890s. And so for us, that's interesting. That's a really interesting idea. It's an interesting character, something we can relate to. Not necessarily whether you're seeing ghosts or not, but it's it's a fun spin on that that situation and, and that that character and that stage in life. So again, it's not necessarily mocking what the character is going through in her own life or her own mental health. It's more about how you react to that and how other characters around you react to that and how if you step back, how that can be quite funny to look at it in that way rather than being insensitive. It's, it's not about that. But I think that's always our approach is to take a very real situation and then step back a little bit and look at it from a slightly different perspective. Is Shining Bell set up with a US buyer yet? Yes, that's on Stars. It will be Stars play here. And we did it with uh, Capital Entertainment. We um, we used to work quite a lot with Aaron Kaplan in the US. And it feels like the US and the UK's kind of creative industries and comedy industries are more aligned than ever. I think Succession is a great example of that. I think it's written in Brixton. So how are you, how is that kind of impacting what Merman does? Because uh, obviously, yeah, you have these ties with the US. So how are you seeing US buyers kind of and their approach to shows that potentially originate out of the UK? I think that's twofold. We have a US development team now. We have a US office. We started there with branded content and now we've moved into TV um, because we get sent so much now through obviously Sharon's got a high profile in, in the US. So we're using that to our advantage. Um, so now, so we're looking in terms of originals in the US development and we have a deal with E1 there as well, a slate for them. But then in terms of international co-production, we look at that slightly differently. So we'll originate a project in the UK and then we'll go to the US to help co-finance. So for example, This Way Up was with Hulu and Channel 4. Frank Island was with Amazon and Channel 4. Um, even There She Goes was BritBox US. So it's, it's a slightly different team as well. We go through maybe the acquisitions team rather than the originals team. So the, the Hulu group are a different group of people that we would pitch to when we're pitching originals US projects. So this was the acquisitions lot. I mean, they're, they're across, but there's so many of them. So it was a slightly different team that we're working with. And what's been great is that you don't necessarily have the prerequisite of having, you've got to have an American actor in this, or you've got to tell an American story. That's fine. I mean, with This Way Up, we weren't asked to include anything about America. In the second series, we we had Asif's and Sharon's partner in New York, but that was only because of lockdown and he was stuck out there physically because he was shooting and we couldn't fly him back. So we sort of created the story around that, but that wasn't, you know, Hulu saying you have to show New York. So that's been very freeing. And also with Frank of Ireland as well, Amazon just wanted to see Ireland. They wanted to see a corner of the world their subscribers would want to see. So we weren't, we were actually asked to show more of Ireland and we didn't have to put subtitles on (laughs) to understand them. And then in terms of Frayed, it's slightly different because it's an acquisition, but it's on HBO Max. And again, the impetus for that was we want to show our viewers a, a world outside the US, you know, to show this place in Newcastle in Australia. That's interesting to us because we haven't seen that before. So it's it's actually bows very well and it's great for us. And because it originates in the UK first, the notes are slightly different. I mean, the notes have always been brilliant, but they're quite respectful of the, the delegate broadcaster and what we want to do and obviously shaping it because quite often the the UK will be paying more the license fee and the Americans will be topping it up or almost half so it's it's respectful of that partnership I think so it's been really great we'd love to do more like that It, it works very well for us obviously it's a few years off for some of those services to arrive in the UK because of all the licensing deals like but we are seeing like services I think like Peacock on Sky that kind of thing is that affecting you know the ability for like you said the kind of first UK broadcaster to come on board how long until you you think you know a HBO Max would fully fund a UK set show yeah I don't know I've been wondering about that as well it's interesting because obviously the deal will run out with Sky eventually so at the moment it's it's useful for HBO Max to come in on Sky projects but I don't know whether their commissioning brief will be 
similar in a way. So I don't know. I can't really comment on that because I'm not sure what's going to happen. Because at the same time, we have Amazon here and it's a very British brief in terms of what they're looking for. I mean, it's great if it can play globally, but also Apple Europe, who obviously we're we're developing for. It's fine to just have British stories, but I think there needs to be a universality to the story so that their partners who are still giving notes from the US can understand it and relate to it and it's not too parochial. So I don't know whether HBO Max will be, you've got to have a more of a global element to play to our subscribers, but judging by our experience with selling to them, shows that have already been made, that hasn't been an issue. But it's interesting because in terms of traditional broadcasters and what they're looking for in the UK, because obviously they're up against streamers now, they have gone rather the other way rather than where we used to be able to sell comedy drama to comedy commissioners like like this way up um, and John the genre hybrid worked they've gone the other way now so it's more we want more overt comedy if we're commissioning fire a comedy pot so it's got to be clear jokes it's not necessarily sad cons anymore it's we all need cheering up after the pandemic it's that sort of escapist content we love family comedy it's it's got to be that um i know that's certainly the case with channel 4 that's that's changing big silly laughs which is you know it's great but it, it means we have to pivot in the way that we're developing because we don't necessarily as i said um start in that place um so we're just finding a way through that so we can still do what we do but maybe tilt it slightly and then the BBC as well you know it's got to be actively looking for BBC One shows and and I think Motherland is a little bit more in that that area that sort of very strong jokes through character um, so we'd, we'd love to do more like, like that which I think we still get to tell those stories and break people's hearts a little bit but also carry them with us and, and enjoy those characters and enjoy funny laugh out loud moments so so it's it's navigating that at the moment. And Sky, I mean, it's interesting because Sky are now putting out that they they would be interested in doing our comedy drama, which is our wheelhouse. You know, that would be fantastic for us to do because we then we can take more time telling story and, and doing what we do best. So we're very interested in, in moving into that. And there is still room there to do our content, I think, because there is the sort of broader, sillier half hours that they do, but also they're encouraging our development in terms of storytelling as well and, and what we do, as, as long as it's funny. I mean, it, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? It's got to be if it's being commissioned by comedy why is it being commissioned by comedy and why is it not going to drama there's often often that that question so you've got to justify that and so are the 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 drama commissioners a bit more open now to elements of comedy than they maybe were before do you think well they say that but i'm not (laughs) i'm not sure i'm not sure when they do get a script there it's I don't understand this joke. No, I shouldn't say that. But um, I think we're, if we're pitching something, if Merman are pitching something, they understand our starting point. So that's that's okay. As long as it's not, like I said, if it's like a murder mystery and you, you're all standing around the body having a laugh. No, we wouldn't do that. Well, apart from Fraid, but... <laughs> Yeah. Um, so it comedy is not the forefront. It, it wouldn't be. It might be just um, a device to lighten something and to earn the dramatic movements, because otherwise the dramatic moments, otherwise it's relentless. It, it can be relentless. And that's that's, you know, those tonal shifts are important and to be able to breathe and take in. A dramatic moment. You need that. And we probably will push that harder than maybe some other producers. So. And it sounds as if during the pandemic, people's development went into kind of hyperdrive. How has it changed how you kind of source material? And now that the kind of live comedy circuit is kind of bouncing back, was that ever a kind of source of of potential projects for Merman? Yes, I mean, we go and see a lot. So yeah, that that was a problem. We're really interested in in writer-performers. That's a lot of what we we do. We actually, we encourage all our staff to go out and see, see talent and report back to us. And the way we work quite often, Mermaid, which is our sister digital company, is is to maybe do online sketches and, and so on with new talent. We've we've done that with Channel Four, the Sparks scheme. We did some female led sketches, and we found some brilliant talent there. That I've now brought a few of them into our writers' room. So yeah, that was a problem. We did, we did need to know who was out there, who was doing what. 
I mean, we have we have writers we we work with who trust us, who will bring us their projects, which is great to have that relationship. But we're always hungry for new talent. And that's so important. And so always on the hunt for those new voices. And if there's a way of bringing some of those voices into a writer's room, which is becoming increasing now, I think, in the UK, that you can do that. But it's right for some projects. It really isn't for others. But we're trying to look at that as well as a way of bringing new voices in. But, but yes, there was a lot of development <laughs> going on I mean the way it works with the first lockdown we were actually at the point of writing scripts anyway we were doing we were writing Motherland Frayed and This Way Up so we weren't actually due to shoot over that summer apart from Frank of Island we were finishing that off and then we just went into the edit so we were still able to work and then when things opened up we were able to shoot again but, but yes there was a, a lot of development across all companies I think and now a lot of people are making things <laughs> across all companies which is which is good as long as you can get the crew so yeah we're writing a lot about you know initiatives that are coming through and things like that but is it that it seemed at one point that it was going to reach crisis point but do you think it's manageable no I think it's still a, a real issue I do and I think more training schemes need to be put in place and and feeding more people into the industry and also shadowing having broadcasters put that in the budget would be so useful rather than put it on the production to put an extra line in the budget but just to help us train people on the job and have producers, you know, baby producers, baby writers on set watching and, and directors as well. I mean, we, we we want to be much more proactive in encouraging female directors and getting them out there. So it's a project which we, we haven't announced yet that we'll be fil- filming in the summer. I've got a u- new young female director who will be doing a block of it, who will be following a more experienced director on the first block because it's so important and, and to get her in there and, and doing that and we're trying to look at ways to do that and if broadcasters can help that even better so it's not always at our risk and at the cost of our budget as well so season two of Frayed has just uh, launched and it's set between the UK and Australia so how was putting that together in a pandemic it was a little bit difficult we had to get special exemption from the Australian government to fly in any UK creatives so some of the actors and myself and then quite quarantine for two weeks in a hotel which I actually loved it was great to get peace and quiet um and the restrictions in Australia weren't as tight at the time as in the UK so regarding very strict cohorts that that wasn't going on and we didn't have to wear masks outside we did have to wear masks in interiors Um, So it was slightly more relaxed in that way, but still testing and and being careful. But at the time that we shot, they hadn't had any cases in Sydney for several months. So it was um, it was it felt quite different there as well, almost like a taste of what life was like before COVID. And I felt terribly guilty because it, it was just in this another lockdown in the in the UK. It was last January, I think it was. Um, so things were quite tough at home. And, and there was me having lunch by the sea on a beach while we were shooting. So it did feel quite, quite different. But um, yes, but then things changed just after we we got back. So, you know. Yeah, I know exactly the feeling, actually. I was in New Zealand at the same time, so January last year, and uh, yeah, felt so guilty. And the two weeks in quarantine as well, I really enjoyed that too. So with the second season of Frayed, how is the show evolving? How are the characters developing? And, and what were the kind of ambitions of the of the second season? Well, without revealing too many spoilers, obviously we had an explosive finale for series one. So then the dramatic question was, how would our characters get out of this? How would they deal with that? What are the consequences of this? And there was there was a slight tension between character and plot in that we didn't want it to become too plotty in terms of all the twists and the turns and thinking about what logistically would happen when, well, I can say, I think, because people will have seen series one, but, you know, when you have a dead body in the mix, what do you do with that? And who did it? And how do they cover it up? and who's going to say what and who knows what at which particular point in the episode. There was a lot of logic plotting. Um, But at the same time, you, you didn't want to dilute the comedy, but also it's a very serious situation. So to get that balance right, we weren't saying what had happened was funny. It was more about how these brilliantly drawn characters were reacting in that situation if you put a Jim, which is um, who plays Sammy's brother, in that kind of situation, how would he react? 
And I think because Sarah had built series one so carefully in conveying these characters and, and their nuances and their comedy, you already knew them by then. So it, the enjoyment was watching that unfold and seeing how they dealt with the situation and also bringing the family closer together. That was a fun thing to do. And it's that sort of question about what, how far would you go to protect your family um, when secrets start to leak out? So lots of drama, but also just making sure that the comedy was working as well without detracting from the gravity of the plot. So it was interesting <laughs> exercise, but, but I think because she had worked so hard on those characters that started to come naturally because if you put a Jim and a Beverly in a certain situation you just know they're not really going to quite understand certain things so Jim's um, ideas for disposing the body are never going to be very sensible so it's you know we could have fun fun in that way with the family dynamics and when Sarah Kendall brought you the the project did she position it as a as an out and out kind of comedy or as an out and out drama and then how it developed well it I don't think it was even that specific at that stage she was doing her stand-ups which um a sort of an hour of storytelling about her time growing up in Newcastle in Australia in the 80s and she said she she wanted to use that as a springboard about a family at that point. She had an idea for the brother. She had an idea for the central character, but there wasn't much else. And she she loved, she used catastrophe as a reference for tone. She loved what we'd done. I mean, this was quite a while ago. It took a while to, to get to this point. So it was basically starting to craft that with her about the story that she wanted to tell set at that time with the backdrop of what was going on in the community in Newcastle with the mines shutting down and what were, what that was doing to the economics of the place. And that was interesting, a framing to that. So that started our journey, I think. And also, I really wanted to go to Australia. So I just thought, yeah, OK, we'll do that. And we'll set some of it in Australia. I mean, there was a slight hesitancy because which British broadcaster would possibly buy a story set in Australia? How on earth would we finance it? That's going to be expensive. That's not going to be particularly cheap. Would we get Australian co-financing? So we had to work out all of the practicalities of that. But I think, you know, we, we got there. And I think that's partly why it took a while to do that. But the way we work, we just say, write the story, write what you want to work, write, and we'll work out the logistics of it all later. But I don't think that should cramp you in what story you want to tell or be too prescriptive. Though saying that, when we got to the sales part of it with Sky, um, they didn't want it quite rightly. They didn't want it to feel too much like an acquisition. They wanted to feel that it was a Sky original as well. And they'd had input and there was a reason for it being on Sky. So we had to look at casting very carefully for the British characters. And Diane Morgan's character, Fiona, originally was Australian in the outline. And then they asked whether she could possibly be an expat so we could have some more high profile British casting, which actually worked incredibly well for her take on, on Newcastle. So. That's how that's how we started. And it was it's ABC in Australia, so a public broadcaster there, and obviously Sky being a pay TV channel. So how do those kind of their needs and wants kind of line up? Yeah. Well, initially it was it was the duration actually was a slight issue because ABC hadn't done because obviously they don't carry ads and they'd done half hour comedies. And Sky wanted this as um the commercial hour with obviously commercials. So looking at structure and how we did that was a little bit of an issue. But ABC came around and they said, actually, we can make that work. We can make that sort of odd 46 minutes work for us, which was great. So once we'd got over that and we knew the story we were telling, I wondered about whether we'd be compromised slightly on, on tone and on what the directive would be there. But no, they really supported us in what we wanted to say. And particularly once Sky said it could go in the 10 o'clock slot, that was fine, that freed us up. And I think Australians are a bit more relaxed about swearing and content. It was because they, I think there is their slots a lot earlier than what we have. I think, um, as Sarah says, we're, we're wuss <laughs> when it comes to swearing. So, um, so we didn't have to worry about the content in that way and the sort of material we were and the language that we were choosing to use. So it's now on so it's Sky Max, isn't it? Which is kind of the recently rebranded case, yeah. channel. Um, does that affect kind of anything in terms of this, the writing? You know, what because it feels like we're in kind of a world where some shows have a foot in the kind of traditional, it's going to be going out at this time uh, on this channel, and then on another foot in the kind of streaming world. 
where it's you know it goes up potentially all at once and it's very fluid so how do you kind of balance those things in terms of when you're developing projects um in terms of this no because that change happened after we were once we were shooting actually so but I don't think the content would have had to change anyway. It's just about watershed, I think, as well. So it was a 10 o'clock show, so you could explore certain subjects in that way. That's always something to bear in mind. But you, we develop shows particularly for that particular broadcaster and what their needs are and what their content, current content is and what will fit nicely alongside that. So that's always at the forefront of our mind when we get an idea. It's okay, but where could we sell this? I mean, I say that, but then if the story's brilliant, we'll work that out afterwards. Like like I said with Freyd, it was a little bit, well, okay, where would we take this in the UK? So it's a, it goes hand in hand. I mean, I obviously have to run a business as well. So I'd be crazy if I just took every idea because there's maybe one possible home for it and that's it. Because I do have to think more broadly about if we're investing in, in something, where we could take it and what the possibilities, the routes to market would be for that. So that, that is something you have to bear in mind. But at the same time, because we are so focused on the writer and, and particularly writer performers, we want them to tell the story they want to tell, but with a gentle bit of guidance maybe along the way, which will hopefully only improve the story and the script. From Utopia and Broadchurch to the Tunnel, Humans and Spooks, UK production company Kudos is responsible for some of the biggest British TV hits of the last decade. Yet it's an upcoming series spearheaded by Peaky Blinders creator Stephen Knight and set during the Second World War that managing director Martin Haynes describes as the Banerjee-owned label's biggest show to date. Based on the book by Ben McIntyre and filmed on location in the UK and Morocco, SAS Rogue Heroes dramatises how the Special Forces unit was formed in the darkest days of the conflict. Haynes spoke to Michael Pickard about making the show and how Knight found parallels between the characters who would come to form the first iteration of the SAS and the notorious Shelby family at the heart of Peaky Blinders. So maybe, I mean, just tell me a bit about Kudos. I mean, how have the last couple of years been for you and, and how has the general business been to this point? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's been a hell of a couple of years. Uh, it won't surprise you to, to hear you know, we we have been making three of the biggest shows that we've ever made, I think, um, in the middle of a global pandemic. So, uh, you know, it was super challenging. And two of those shows, SAS Rogue Heroes and Then You Run, which we're making for Sky, were shot substantially abroad. So that was pretty difficult, you know, when there were travel restrictions and, you know, God knows what in terms of, you know, logistics. So it was, it was hard, but, uh, but um, you know, we, we managed managed to a little bit delayed but we managed to complete everything and we're really you know pleased and proud with um how the shows are looking the other one is uh the rig uh which is a big amazon show which our sister company um wild mercury is doing so you know there were three massive shows and, it, and in the middle of that we were also doing our returning series like grandchester and code 404 so uh it was good you know it's good it was uh i'm looking forward to it being over i don't blame you i mean are, are things getting easier now i know obviously in the uk where I guess back to normal essentially I mean are you seeing that now on set in production or is that going to take a little while if at all to kind of you know resume things as they were two years ago no, I think things are getting easier I mean we're, we're as I speak now we're actually not in production in uh, principal photography on anything which is quite nice actually because we've been, <laughs> been, in, been in constant production for you know two years really so we've got a little bit of breathing space to see how you know see what happens uh, I mean I think again it's, it's a sort of uncertainty you know we've all learn to live with uncertainty but there's an uncertainty about you know what will happen with covid protocols what will happen with you know how do you get insurance and you know all that type of thing that's you know far from clear at the moment but uh you know i, th I think you know things are definitely more straightforward than they were last year and and i guess in terms of you know the, the productions that kudos is known for i would resonate mostly with i guess humans and, and utopia and those sort of things so mm. where does something like sas rogue heroes come into you know your slate is it what is it about that show or, or the source material initially that you thought this would be something for us to do i mean it's the biggest show we've ever made in budget level and and you know and scale the the you know we bought the the ben mcintyre's book three to four years ago and the you know the reason we acquired it and it was you know it was a hot book at the time the reason that we acquired it was because you know it had a really strong British brand at the centre of it and what we were looking for at the time was something that was you know it had a really strong
strong British brand at the centre of it, but had the scale and the sort of longevity to travel internationally, you know, if it became popular in the UK, you know, if it was a hit in the UK, then you felt that uh, it had the potential to, you know, it's not, it's, uh, it's obviously very different from the crown, but it has a a, a recognisability internationally and a, and a scale, you know, it goes from 1940 right up to the present day, you know, in terms of what the SAS, you know, are doing this, you know, and they, they have kind of been involved in every interesting, uh, well, every significant conflict and um, lots of history uh, along the way. So that's what we kind of saw as a, a sort of landscape to play on. And, and we obviously needed a brilliant writer to put their stamp on it and have their vision and voice for it. You know, and there, there have been lots of attempts at telling this story. And, you know, it's been in development at various places, um, you know, over the years. But I think that, you know, we were really, it was one of those things where we had a really great piece of IP and taking it to Steve and Steve's reaction to it was kind of, uh, you know, it was serendipity to, uh, and, and just a great kind of partnership. It's one of those things that you, uh, it doesn't need much pitching. You know, Stephen Knight does his take on the on the SAS origination story. It's not the most challenging pitch I've ever had to do. What then would you say about his approach to the story and telling, you know, the birth of the SAS essentially? Well, I, th- I think the, you know, the, I remember that one of the things that we talked about right at the start was how, you know, if you look at something like Peaky, you know, that is the importance of family and dysfunctional family and um, strong family ties and, you know, in that family uh, are something that is, you know, runs through all of the all of the series. And, you know, actually the SAS is a family. It's a, you know, it's a family of um, certainly back then people who were sort of misfits, renegades, you know, didn't quite fit in anywhere in it in anywhere in any particular regiment. And I think one of the things that you get from Ben McIntyre's book is, is that they came together and they found a kind of sense of belonging in this uh, in this unit led by these two eccentric, very driven, but you know, unique characters that you know perhaps gave them a sense of belonging to something that they didn't feel before. So actually, you know, th- th- there was there were sort of resonances, and and then uh, between you know some of Steve's other work, you know, there's a lot of kind of toxic mas- masculinity in there as well, and you know, Steve does drawing male characters and male characters that are, are are complex and you know often violent and and sort of brutal and brutalized but also he's brilliant at showing you know how they're vulnerable and you know suggesting you know how how they you know what their backstories might have been in order to make them the way they are uh, you know and that was just such a brilliant kind of take on those guys because you know they they were you know they were very tough often very violent men but they were Steve shows them you, you know as whole human beings and whole characters and so you know we were we were we were super excited about that you know his vision for that and he also you know he he was he was drawn to the material as well because his father was uh, served in North Africa in a different campaign he just had a real kind of resonance with the material like immediately uh, you know and he's a big history buff as well um, and he knows his, his second world war history and saw it as a, an opportunity i think to tell that secret history uh, in a, in a way that was sort of entertaining and accessible. And you mentioned, obviously, there's a lot of male characters. How important was it maybe to balance that out with some sort of key female characters? You know, can you tell us maybe about those and, and how the characters sort of interplay with each other? Yeah, I, uh, um, I mean, you know, this is, there's no getting away from it. This is a story, you know, mainly about men. And, you know, we were, we were Steve was clear and, and we were, and BBC, you know, recognised that it wasn't something where you could kind of pretend that wasn't the case. And, you know, so we kind of lent into it and, and you know celebrated it but within that you know uh, Steve has drawn this brilliant character who's played by Sophia Botella and she's a kind of combination of some real life women who played really pivotal roles in the kind of espionage and security services in North Africa and so it was important to you know be able to kind of have uh, Sophia as a sort of counterpoint and also a you know a, a um, to have a different kind of relationship with uh, our lead character Sterling um, and he, he, we were able then to you know tell a different side of his his character and his story so you know she's a significant we, we say that this is a four-hander you know it's David Sterling it's Paddy Main it's Jock Lewis uh, and then it's uh, Sophia's character so she's a significant element I would say and then I guess you know when it comes to thinking about 
how you're going to make the show, I mean, what are some of the first things that you had to think about in terms of whether it's the big cast that you've got with some fantastic names or, you know, locations or, or just filming some of the set pieces that you might have to deal with? What were some of those initial thoughts you had? Yeah, I, I mean, our, you know, it was essential that we had a, a director with a, an incredible vision for it. And so, again, uh, it's one of those projects where I think the strength of the IP and, and the strength of Steve adapting it meant that we could re- attract a really brilliant director. And Tom Shankland has been unbelievable. You know, he, he you know, he's sort of been like a member of the SAS, frankly. In you know, he, he directed all six episodes, which is an astonishing feat of a sort of endurance as much as anything else. But of of creative vision and Stephen Smallwood who is a, um, a sort of long-time collaborator with Tom set about uh, you know designing the vision um, and how we were going to make it I mean a lot a lot of it was disrupted by Covid we were initially going to shoot almost everything out in Morocco and we ended up shooting about 50-50 so we did all our interiors in the UK in the end and we did those first for sort of two months and then we actually managed to get everybody out about May last year to Morocco and we did three months in Morocco. So that changed our plans in terms of, you know, what we were going to build and where we were going to locate production. But I think, the, you know, the, the production design and the costume design, it was, you know, we always felt that, you know, we didn't want this to be a history lesson. And uh, we wanted it absolutely to be authentic and to have historical integrity. But we also wanted it to feel as though it was up to date and uh, had a contemporary feel to it. So the way that the guys are dressed and the way that they look uh, and and um, Eve, Sophia, the way that she looks is, you know, I hope that you'll all agree when you see it, it, it feels as though it has a, a sort of contemporary swagger to it, as well as being, you know, historically accurate. And, and the, you know, the photos that you'll probably be familiar with that were taken back at the time, you know, they, they sort of look a bit like a bunch of kind of Hoxton hipsters, you know, pirates in the desert. And um, we we really loved that. And, and, and the vehicles were amazingly, you know, they were kind of like steampunk vehicles you know they, they were Land Rovers and light light armoured vehicles that they had customised and adapted themselves and they've just got this incredible look so the vehicles in the show are you know absolutely brilliant and um, for, for any kind anyone who likes their vehicles there's a sort of Mad Max element to them. Tell me just a bit about the cast. Obviously, Connor Swindles has won some rave reviews from Sex Education. I think those that work with him, notably, that I've noticed reading about, you know, working with him, they've all praised him. And so what was it about him, perhaps, as the leading man? And then you have Dominic West and Jack O'Connor, among many others. Um, how did you kind of piece the team together? Well, we we um, we looked at a lot of people for David Sterling and Paddy Main, and, and, you know, their chemistry had to be absolutely right. You know, and what the, you know, the brief um, right to, at the beginning to Colleen, our casting director, who, who did an amazing job, was you know these these guys were you know in their early twenties, uh, and some of them weren't even in their twenties, so they were young, very young men. And often when you you're making drama like this, you end up having to sort of cast a bit older in order to find you know names that have profile. And 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 so that that was the brief, and and we had to get the right mix of names and people who were you know earlier on in their careers. And Connor, we really knew you know as soon as we saw we had to do these weird chemistry reads on Zoom. And uh, when we saw Jack O'Connell and Connor reading together, I think everybody just recognised that they had this brilliant chemistry. And even though, you know, Connor is, you know, he's a young young man, um, he had a real, he sort of really owned that character and he had a real sort of authority. But, you know, he didn't, he he sort of let Jack have his space. Jack, the the Paddy main character is a massive character himself. So it it was good that they could let each other have space in order to be able to perform and that just came through in spades you know on the zoom and uh we love jack you know jack was the first uh, one we cast so we were looking for someone who worked really well with jack and you know had a different performance and a different kind of energy you know in order to sort of complement and and highlight the other one so that's how we you know so what we got we i think the order was that we cast jack and then we cast connor and then we cast Alfie as Jock, and he was brilliant. You know, he just, he's got such a kind of, kind of inner rage. <laughs> 
in the show you know he's he's uh he's quite uh, the, the the character of jock lewis is, is someone who you know was quite stiff upper lip and um you know really didn't um, show very much emotion and alfie manages to combine that with you know being demonstrating a kind of uh, inner struggle and a, a, and a complexity that we we all loved and then it was you know it was really important that we found an actress for eve who could stand alongside those three and wouldn't be sort of overshadowed and would be able to own the female lead and she was we all loved her from from the outset we've been aware of some of her other work and she was someone that we really wanted we want, wanted someone who was authentically you know north african and french north african and so sophia was always a really great option and then you know we wanted the the rest of the cast to uh, to also kind of elevate what we already had and we're looking for a role for dominic and uh, wrangle clark is is a real you know it's a real really interesting and fun role you know in that he you know he was the sort of cross-dressing eccentric who ran uh, espionage services in british north africa and um you know liked to drink and uh, was a, a kind of an incredibly colorful character and and dominic you know just is is brilliant in playing that role so yeah, I mean, it was it was it was pretty challenging, you know, casting the show. But we, you know, we came out with a cast that now we look back and think, well, there's no one we'd rather have. You know, they're just completely gelled and um, it became a really brilliant team together. Okay, great. And I mean, what can you tell us then about, uh, I guess, some of the, you know, the, the set pieces in the show that we can look forward to seeing? And, and were there any challenging bits? You know, what were the most challenging kind of sections of the show you had to film? I mean, there's 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 a lot that you know that we do definitely. You know, the budget uh, allows us to um, have some really great action sequences, and you know whether it is their first parachute jump, which didn't go so well, or you know their subsequent raids when they were working out, you know how the SAS would attack differently from everybody else, and their V formation and the way that they worked in small groups, you know, behind enemy lines, and you know we are able in every episode to have at least one big set piece action sequence and you know I think that they really you know they look very filmic and you know they 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 look really sort of big budget you know there were there were when we got to Morocco after having to wait for for two and a half months we we got there and you know we were meant to film there earlier in the year um, because it gets very very hot on the edge of the Sahara in the middle of the summer as you might imagine so um, it was kind of 45 degrees out there you know sometimes hotter um, which is insane you know, but um, we took, you know, all the precautions that we could in order to keep everybody, you know, hydrated and as cool as we could. So there's, the, you know, there's a big sort of element of everybody kind of being, uh, you know, in the SAS, really, that, you know, it, it, it was full on. But there was also huge, you know, we had major challenge, challenges with sandstorms. So, you know, sandstorms, it turns out, are a big thing in, in May and June in, you know, in the Moroccan deserts. And they come, they sort of sweep in and cause absolutely absolute havoc and chaos for you know it can be kind of half an hour but it can last for a couple of days and um really quite frightening because you can't see your hand in front of your face um suddenly and when you're right you know you we were right out in some fairly remote spots and so you know the cast and crew i know either we couldn't film or we could film but we had to take some pretty extreme measures in order to be able to keep everybody safe and 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 to get the work so you know it was it was properly epic michael you know in 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 order to kind of film and and, uh, you know, one doesn't want to sort of bang on about COVID, but that was, it was super hard with that as well in, in terms of, you know, the testing regime and every, uh, you know, and some people, you know, obviously getting COVID and, you know, how you deal with that when people are in such kind of a, a, an extreme environment. So it was um, it was a sort of minor miracle that we, we actually managed to complete the production, but I'm glad we did. And is this the kind of show where all the actors are getting involved and wanting to jump out of planes and things, or are they kept a, a, a safe distance away from that kind of stuff. No, they, they 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 all threw themselves into it. I mean, they, they before we started shooting, there was a boot camp with the actual SAS. So we part. One of the, the the great things about this, actually, Michael, is that the SAS Regimental Association, who are the the main guardians of the SAS, if you like, they've never partnered with anybody else uh, on any any television show or or any anything really. I mean, but they did a little bit with Ben McIntyre's book. But they um, they completely embraced our show, and um, so the SAS themselves gave a boot camp for our guys in the u 
UK for a couple of weeks before they actually got into filming. So that kind of set the tone, you know, and uh, I think that they were all quite uh, in awe and kind of nervous about, um, you know, David Sterling and Paddy Main are the absolute royalty of the SAS. You, you know, they, they it doesn't get any better. So the challenge of taking on those characters and, you know, bringing them to flesh, you know, was a significant honour slash challenge for the guys. But but no, it, it you know, it's an action, you know, it, at its heart, it is an action show. And so, you know, everybody had to get involved with lots of stunt work and jumping off these kind of like high uh, sort of pylon things, you know, for, for parachute training and such like. And so then you mentioned at the top, obviously, you hope this is going to be an international show and Banerjee Wright's will be hoping to sell it around the world. I mean, why do you think this is going to resonate with people, not just in the UK, but yeah, around the world? Well, uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, the cast helps, you, you know, the cast is, it, it, it definitely makes people sit up and, and take notice of it. Stephen Knight obviously helps massively as well. You know, Peaky is a worldwide phenomenon um, and he's a huge success with, with uh, C on Apple and with Spencer, his, you know, the movie that he had out recently. So there's a, there's a lot of kind of nice elements to it. I mean, we've already sold it in the US. Banerjee Wrights has already placed it with Epics, who have already committed to season two, um, should that happen. And there is there's a lot of sales already concluded for, you know, most of the of the, the big international territory. So it seems to be working. And, you know, the fact that that's already in place before it's gone out in the UK, you know, I hope means that we were right about it having an appeal. You never quite know because, you know, everybody's got their own version of uh, an elite army group. You know, the, the, the US has got, you know, the Navy SEALs and the Green Berets and stuff like that. But I think what, what Steve's managed to do and, well, you know, when we were taking the project out and showing people the first couple of scripts is, you know, it's about those characters and their their stories. And it's not just a war drama, a war series. You know, you really sort of engage with each of the each of the guys. So I think it has a sort of universal feel to it. And it's a lot of fun. And, you know, it has, a, as I say, it's definitely not a kind of boring history lesson. It has the swagger of Peaky, but with these couldn't make them up real life characters doing insane stuff to change the course of the war in, you know, in Northern Africa. So we've got a lot of good things, a lot of good elements uh, to sell and Banerjee writes have I think found it um, a sort of pleasure to sell really and then just then you you kind of tease a, a possible second season so you think this is obviously a show that can run and, and follow these guys or, or the, the, the SAS itself through you know many years ahead yeah I mean that's certainly the hope uh, I mean we we um, finish season one halfway through the war and so we've always seen it you know as minimum two years but you know when we were talking to Steve we always thought this was a, a you know a multi-series franchise you know Steve's already planned out in his head what series three and four would be so yeah hopefully that we'll, we'll, we'll get to um do more series for sure French streaming service Salto launched in 2020 just as the country's second pandemic-induced national lockdown was getting underway the service, a joint venture between soon-to-merge commercial broadcasters TFR and M6 plus public broadcaster France Television, came as a response to the growing influence of US players like Netflix and Amazon. Salto content director Thomas Crozon spoke to Ruth Laws about the platform's priorities, its programming strategy and subscriber numbers, with suggestions recently in the press that the service is some way off-target. As you may know, we've been launched uh, since uh, October 2020, which was in the midst of uh, of the COVID uh, things. So it was quite bizarre when we launched. But uh, at the same time, it was probably the best time for for the viewers and the subscribers uh, to 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 be ready. So uh, we've launched this French initiative, uh, which is a subsidiary of uh, the three largest main TV groups in France: uh, France Television, TF1, and M6, and and they uh, share uh, a third of uh, the company each, uh, which is also quite strange because they are competitors for uh, the everyday business. But uh, 16 months later, I think that we've launched uh, something that we call the French streaming platform uh, for the French market uh, and the French audience. And um, I think it's quite different from uh, our uh, international competitors. It probably has more to to do with uh, offers like uh, the Britbox uh, offer in uh, in in the UK because it's really the idea to launch this uh, uh, French entertainment platform, which is really really important for us 
because it's not only the uh, the streaming offer, but also a mix of uh, largest uh, offer of TV live uh, for free and and pay TV offer. We've got something like more than 25 channels available on the on the offer, but also all their on demand offers uh, such as uh, MyTF1, Sixplay, or uh, France.tv, but also all their uh, kids targeted offers, uh, and they are quite uh, wide. Because when you you put in in the same place Oku, which is the the French uh, uh, France TV offer, uh, Tefu Max, which is the TF1 offer, and uh, Gulli Max, which is the M6 offer, you probably have the largest French kids offer in in France at the moment. So it's it's quite huge. We've got more than fifteen thousand hours of content available at each moment on the on the platform, and it's it's yeah, it's really thought after what the the French uh, audience in France uh, would look after. At the moment, we are mainly available on the OTT offers. Uh, we, we do not get through the boxes from the uh, cable and uh, and telcos operators, except from Bouygues Telecom. But for most of it, it's, it's through the OTT. So this is probably the uh, youngest target than what we will touch the day we will be available on the box. But uh, it's mainly under 50 and with a large large uh, part of the market which is 16 to 35 uh, I think it's probably more than 60% that are under 35 which is quite interesting for our shareholders because they this is the audience they do not touch that much anymore yeah what's your secret because that's the demographic that most broadcasters want to to tap into <laughs> well it's probably the mix of uh, of the various uh, components of the offers uh we've got either a large amount of uh, french uh, tv series whether it's uh, originals or uh, previews or uh, also library but we've got also a huge part of uh, real tv uh, programs and the we've got the, the previews of the four uh, soap opera uh, available on the french tv uh, market and three of them are targeting youngest uh, audience than than the TV itself. So when they come to Salto, uh, they are even younger <laughs> than on the TV. <laughs> um, and how does content work with um, France Television M6 and TF1? Do, do you, sh- you you can take their content and how does windowing work? Well, it's it's it's. I, I would assume it was it could be also easier as as you mentioned, but it's not. Uh, we are uh, we are buying SVOD rights that they do not uh, usually do not uh, have in their uh, in their hands. So we we're buying it from the market, uh, and uh, but but we'll we're also windowing a lot of of their content. Uh, as I said before, one of the main uh, characteristic of Salto last year was that we brought to the French speaking market more than four thousand uh, episodes, which was first aired on, on Salto. It, it was previews, most of them, but also it was acquisition and, and, and a few originals that were made available to the French markets. And, and 4,000 new episodes a year is more than 10 a day. 100 a week, which is quite incredible. And what's your strategy with, with originals? What are you looking to commission? Uh, we're, we're still pretty, pretty young, in fact. So we are uh, still working on what's working for our uh, subscribers and audience. And the originals is a part of it, but not the whole of things. I, I think the, the main thing for us is to bring to the, the, the subscribers the good, the good programs, uh, whether it's originals, acquisition, pre-buy, co-production or stuff like that, or even library. Uh, we've got library that are doing just so well on, on our market and our audience. So this is a mix of it. Uh, but on the same hand, we, we need to be part of that market, which bring new shows every day. Um, and so we, uh, we've we decided to be part of uh, certain commitments uh, from our uh, shareholders. Last year, we've been uh, a part of uh, Germinal, which was an original for France Television, and it was uh, a pre-buy from from Salso. 
this year we are uh, part of uh, Syndrome E, which is going to be on TF1, but also on uh, Et La Montagne Fleurira, which is also a show from France 2. And we are dealing with that. But the thing is to bring good content to our subscribers. Last year, we had the chance to have a French reboot of And Then There Were None, which was uh, produced by M6 and uh, with a theatrical cast, uh, large uh, ambitions. And we had the chance to, to, to have it 11 months before it was aired on M6. At the end, for our subscribers, it was kind of an original. It had the same flavor. <laughs> And uh, and it did really really good numbers. Um, what shows have performed well on Salso over the past year? What have been the sort of maybe the top three or four most views? I, 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 I will give you uh, uh, a few brands uh, that were really really successful with no particular uh, order uh, in time in terms of success. But uh, let's say that we had the chance to to bring to the French market audience the Friends Reunion, which was huge and it was great uh, because uh, uh, both. Uh, Warner and, and TF1 gave us the chance to to be the, the platform that uh, brought that uh, that kind of shows to the French audience. It was really really uh, awaited also in France by by the French friends community. Last month we had uh, the return to Hogwarts, uh, which was quite tremendous. Uh, but the thing is that we we've also bring to for, for the first time in France the French TV series which is called HP high intellectual potential uh, this show uh, had numbers uh, it was something like 12 million viewers on TF1 for the first night and it was uh, available on Salto two weeks before you can easily imagine how huge it was and we can't forget also all the t real TV shows and all the soap operas which are the bread and butter from for Salto every day because we are part of the daily routine of our subscribers and when we bring them uh, these shows two days prior they're, uh, they're airing on the various TVs it's two days before there's no ads <laughs> and you can find all the stories uh, and with that kind of offer you're a part of, of the small club of the people who knows the end of the story before the others and it's really really important for our subscribers um, and what soap opera is the popular on South uh, in fact the, the four of them are uh, th there are four in, in France at the moment which are two on, are on TF1 Ici Tout Commence and Demain Nous Appartient one on France 2, uh, which is called uh, Ainsi Grand Soleil and Plus Belle La Vie, which is the oldest one, oldest in age, but not in target, uh, available on France 3. And we, we've got the four of them. And in fact, this is really a part of our offer and, and the fact that people like Salto because they can watch their show before. And it's quite the same with, uh, with Les Marseillais or La Villa des Coeurs Brisés, which are real TV shows, really, really huge on the youngest uh, target uh, uh, audience of, uh, in France. And um, when it comes to acquisitions, yes. do you mainly acquire content um, from French producers or, or do, do you also acquire internationally as well? I know there's obviously the 25% rule in France. Yes, uh, but, but the thing is that we, we've, when we put up uh, Salto, we've decided that we should be uh, probably the largest library in, of French-speaking TV series, but also documentary. So we've got more than, I think it's probably more than 10,000 episodes on Salto, which are either French uh, TV series, short corn, long, uh, long episode, but also documentaries. So we've got the hugest and the largest uh, offers uh, in this field. The fact is that when we pretend to be the French entertainment platform, we are willing to bring a French flavor to the platform, but also foreign countries' uh, programs and contents. So there's a huge part also on US and, and English-speaking programs but last year we've launched uh, our first Russian TV show uh, which was called the uh, Chala Chronicles it was brought to us by uh, a Russian platform uh, and, and it was a really really a good show uh, we also had an Israeli uh, show uh, such as The Grave we had the Spanish show from uh, the creator of uh, La Casa de Papel which was called El Embarcadero and it was absolutely great for us. We love that Spanish show so much that last week we've launched Todos Miente, 
then a new uh, a new Spanish show, but we'll also uh, have a Norway Icelandic shows and stuff like that. And last thing is, it was an Italian show uh, uh, which is called Nelle <laughs> Nelle Twimani, <laughs> um, and and it, it, it's been it's been great for us on the UK side. When we launched Salto, we had the chance to have two BBC programmings, which were which were really really good, very English candle, and also Quiz. Uh, quiz is so easy for the French uh, market because uh, the quiz game and uh, who wants to be a millionaire was huge in France. So the idea that you can fake and uh, <laughs> was was in, in the mind uh, of uh, our subscribers. So it was really, really important. Last week, we've launched also very British scandal, the new uh, show. We had the chance to, to be uh, the only platform in France uh, where Small Axe uh, was available. And it has been a momentum for for Salto because when when, when we launched the, uh, the the platform a few months ago, probably a large part of journalists had the idea that we were going to be uh, the French. The French Beret and Baguette uh, platform, <laughs> and uh, and so we've decided to to have a step on the left or right side. I don't know, uh, and and say yes. Of course, we've got all these French TV shows which are part of um, the uh, daily uh, things uh, for for the French uh, audience. But we need to bring them uh, also things that would not be uh, made available on the on our shoulders TV. Small Axe was part of it, and it was quite the same with Northwater. So we pre-bought uh, Northwater two years ago, and it was really, really a nice, great show, uh, quite tough and strong, and uh, yes, good. Um, and, and do you prefer pre-buying over co-productions? What's your strategy there? It's it's not. Uh, th- there's no matter. I, I don't think there's a matter of strategy. It's it's either what is possible at the beginning. Uh, I think that we should be uh, quite. Quite, uh, modest. Uh, so <laughs> we are growing quite faster than we thought. Uh, so this is good, but also we need to to be, uh, in fact, really, really modest and um, in terms of what our uh, audience is waiting for. What are they willing to see? When we've launched Alto, we had huge ideas and say it's going to be like that, and they will want to watch that kind of shows. They they will like probably more than uh, others uh, pay TV stuff and and stuff like that. And in fact, not uh, they are willing to have good shows, whether it's. TV or free TV. In fact, they like the good stories. Uh, so, so we've probably slightly moved our uh, our targets uh, for the largest, probably easiest thing um, to 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 watch over. But then also need to have uh, Love Island and Small Axe. And what is the demand for UK content in France right now and on Salto? Because at the moment, non-English language drama in particular is really important and uh, growing. Important popularity and I wondered if that means that people are, are less interested in, in UK content in France. Uh, they are absolutely not because the, the, the interesting thing is that for the last two years uh, the largest numbers of ratings for uh, foreign TV series uh, was for uh, Murder in Paradise. Let's say it's a bit of a French UK TV series because there are few uh, characters that are French but it's mainly UK in fact. Uh, so uh, um, uh, and the, the good thing is that we, we brought to the to our subscriber the, the 10th first season and good news we will have also the 11th one in preview when it starts on uh, on France 2 so in fact the French audience uh, like the UK content yes and, and wh- wh- why do you think they they do I think I, I think it, this is uh, probably the quality of, of the, the storytelling in fact UK has, has a large tradition of of, uh, bringing good content and and good TV series. I mean, Broadchurch was a huge success in uh, in France. Um, I think the and then there were none from the B. Was it BBC or ITV? I don't I don't remember. Uh, three three years ago was also a huge uh, success. We we have the chance to to have Don Sanabe uh, on uh, on Salto and it's tremendous. But it used to be tremendous when it was broadcasted also on TMC years ago. So yes, a French TV uh, audience, French audience like the the UK content. Yes. Of 
course. They also like the, the, the Spanish one and the Italian one now, but it's quite newer. And I wondered, if there is there a specific show that you're really looking for for Salto? Like, for example, like a young adult romantic comedy. Is there, is there anything you're desperate to have pitched to you? <laughs> This is this is a good <laughs> a good target because this is yes this is probably what we are looking after yeah uh, we need in fact yeah a young young adult we we, we had the 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 CC uh, reboot from from Germany in December on Salto and CC is a is a, is a huge program in France it has always been the, the first three movies are uh, evergreens for every Christmas uh, end of the year. Uh, uh, moments but when we brought the new tv show that new shows which was made available from rtl plus uh, uh, the german streamer from rtl it has been a huge huge success on salto and specifically on the youngest one and at the same moment we had also and just like that so all the women on, on salto were absolutely pleased <laughs> with the, that kind of offer if we can have the mix uh, the youngest one and a bit of oldest one and it's still pretty, pretty young on it, and just like that. Also, uh, the the mix of it would be the, the perfect show for us. Um, and what kind of um, sort of factual programming works well for you? Are there any particular like documentaries that that you want? Probably like all these streamers in in, in the world, the, the crime scene is is always always really really important. Uh, we brought to to the French market uh, the uh, the story of uh, Guylaine Maxwell, uh, which was. Uh, for Peacock at the beginning, and we had the the, the the French rights for it. It was quite great because this is a story that can speak and appeal to everybody in the world. Uh, so th that kind of shows are really, really important for us. On the more entertainment uh, things, we've got also, you know, the, the previews of Farmer Wants a Wife or Married at First Sight, and it's always really really good and then i just have one final question and I, I don't know if this is accurate but i i was researching salto before this interview that there's half a million paying subscribers which is less than i think was was forecasted i i just wondered if if that figure is accurate and if you if you had any comments about that uh, uh, the only comment that i can do is that uh, people that are thinking that it was not our objective are not part of salto so they probably don't know what was ours and the thing is that uh, as I explain, uh, the numbers given on uh, in, in the press uh, are only available on the OTT market, which is quite different from what the other streamers are facing at the moment. The thing is that we are just quite new. Fourteen months is <laughs> is nothing in, in the story. Uh, we've got shareholders that we can't rely on. I think the streaming is now a part of their strategy. Uh, so no problem at the moment, and and no comments about the the targets or the so-called target numbers. <laughs> That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussion by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>